This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is No-Go World, How Fear is Redrawing Our Maps and Infecting Our Politics by Ruben Anderson. War-Torn Deserts, Jihadist Killings, Trucks Weighted Down with Contraband and Migrants, from the Afghan-Pakistan borderlands to the Sahara, images of danger depict a new world disorder on the global margins. With vivid detail, Ruben Anderson traverses this terrain to provide a startling new understanding of what is happening in remote danger zones. Instead of buying into apocalyptic visions, Anderson takes aim at how Western states and international organizations conduct military, aid, and border interventions in a dangerously myopic fashion, further disconnecting the world's rich and the world's poor, using drones, proxy forces, border reinforcement, and outsourced aid, risk-obsessed powers are helping to remap the world into zones of insecurity and danger. The result is a vision of chaos crashing into fortified borders, with national and global politics riven by fear. Anderson contends that we must reconnect and snap out of this dangerous spiral, which affects us whether we live in Texas or Timbuktu. Only by developing a new cartography of hope can we move beyond the political geography of fear that haunts us. No-go world. How fear is redrawing our maps and infecting our politics by Ruben Anderson. Out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. For Thomas Jefferson, American white people's liberty had its origins in a free people in Saxon Germany, who then fled to Britain and then on to the New World. American expansion was for Benjamin Franklin and so many who followed, a solution to Europe's labor market pressures, a theory later formalized by Malthus in ideas about the frontier as an escape valve for class conflict. As a result, any restriction on expansion was an assault on American liberty. And so it was the limits on expansion and the protection of indigenous territory imposed by the British Crown after the Seven Years' War that became a central cause of the American Revolution, a revolution that defended what would come to be known as a Jacksonian form of liberty. It was a form of liberty reliant upon the dispossession of indigenous people and Mexicans, upon African enslavement, and, ultimately, upon the constant fleeing outward that created an empire that few dare call by its name. This is the topic of historian Greg Grandin's new book, The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America, and of my interview with him today. As Grandin writes, this expansionist project has finally lost its ideological and political economic vitality, no longer able to neatly reconcile centuries of mounting contradictions. Grandin writes, quote, As thousands died and billions went missing, the vanities behind not just the war, 
but the entire post-Cold War expansionist project of more, more, more came to a definitive end. And so politics returned to the border as American expansion hit a wall, figuratively and, as Trump has demanded, quite literally. Trumpism, Grandin writes, is extremism turned inward, all-consuming and self-devouring. There is no divine, messianic crusade that can harness and redirect passions outward. Expansion, in any form, can no longer satisfy interests, reconcile contradictions, dilute the factions, or redirect the anger. The End of the Myth is a remarkable book, and there was so much I wanted to talk about that we didn't have time to discuss. And so I'm going to talk about some of those things right now in this intro. I had a number of questions that I ran out of time to ask about, about how the frontier myth powerfully shaped American ideas about how humans should relate to non-human nature. From the perspective of white settlers looking out across the frontier, indigenous nomadism was a major problem. It was important not only to remove native people, but also to fix them in place. In settler ideology, native mobility evinced indigenous people's lack of dominion over nature, which in turn made them unworthy of self-governance, and thus subject to settler domination. This is, I think, an important insight. Systems of control over race in place, in other words, how human groups are spatially organized under capitalism and colonialism, are fundamentally rooted in ideologies of how humans relate to the natural world. This ideology about humans' relationship to non-human nature became embodied in the American cowboy ideal. The American character and nation, Frederick Jackson Turner famously argued, was forged against the wild frontier. American masculinity, as Teddy Roosevelt saw it, was best honed on the cutting edge of a violent frontier, a dynamic Americans have constantly sought to recreate, from Roosevelt's rough riders in Cuba during the Spanish-American War to John Wayne playing Green Beret in Vietnam. America expanded because it was exceptional. It was exceptional because it expanded. American liberty was guaranteed by the right of American movement, of humans, military power, and capital, to fix others in place, both physically and in terms of a racialized labor caste system at home and abroad. A dynamic that in turn functioned to obscure the generalized exploitation at the system's root. In other words, the wages of whiteness, of masculinity, of nationalism, obscured the generalized exploitation of wage labor. As Grandin writes, American exceptionalism was in reality an American exemptionalism that held that the U.S. was not bound by any ordinary rules, moral and otherwise. The expansionist cowboy frontier myth obscured the reality of Americans' relationship to nature at home and abroad. The icon of the brave everyman taming and harnessing nature's power invisibilized the reality of major capitalists pillaging the earth everywhere, mixing raw material with human labor power so as to profit by way of stealing from both. We can look back to the Sagebrush Rebellion of the 1970s and 80s, an uprising framed as a result of self-made settlers in defense of their western lands. 
but which was actually financed by extractive industries in response to the protection of public lands accomplished by laws like the Endangered Species Act. We can see it in disgraced former Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke galloping to his office on a horse and then opening up formerly protected lands to rampant corporate extraction. In other words, the mythology of the American individual man's domination of nature has obscured not only the capitalist expropriation of nature, but also the very nature of a system that predates upon human labor and the earth alike. The frontier idea of humans' relationship to nature also powerfully shaped gender norms. It heightened the power of an idealized domestic patriarchal order, which, as Grandin writes, was, quote, sharpened in contrast to the wilderness of the frontier. Lewis Mumford wrote about just this in 1926, arguing that frontier mythology subjugated women to men precisely because women reminded men that they were not self-made, but in fact dependent upon women's work in the household, what in Marxist feminist terms we would call social reproduction. Rendering care work's value invisible, of course, required tremendous violence, a violence that the frontier has long supplied in enormous quantities. The frontier was a solution that also repeatedly created a new problem. The closing of one frontier always necessitated the opening of another. In 1979, Jimmy Carter gave his famous so-called malaise speech, in which he declared that the U.S. was too dependent on energy, and too dependent on the need for constant more. The speech was, contrary to conventional wisdom, actually well-received. But Carter so dedicated to breaking with the New Deal order, never followed up with a coherent program. And then, writes Grandin, quote, Ronald Reagan ran against Jimmy Carter's executive order to turn thermostats down in government buildings as if it were the British Royal Proclamation banning white settlement west of the Alleghenies. What Reagan promised was, as Reagan said, quote, there are no such things as limits to growth, and... Nothing is impossible. Until, of course, so many things suddenly seemed so impossible. And so we can understand neither last Friday's horrific massacre in New Zealand, nor Trump's election, without explaining how a war on terror, exhausted of ideological certitude and morale, came home to roost. The violence the U.S. projected outward ricocheted back, not just on 9-11, but in response to the war on terror that followed. The home front was absorbed into the battlefield, and this has been consistently true, as historian Kathleen Ballou argues. On September 16, 2001, George Bush declared, this crusade, this war on terrorism, is going to take a while. The longer and the bigger, the better. The United States needed a purpose-filled expansionist project to fill the void left by the Cold War's end and neoliberalism's rise, to reinflate nationalist American exceptionalism's ideological bubble. It needed a new frontier. And so the crusade launched by Bush has been a long one indeed. The New Zealand shooter is one of the forever war's irregular foot soldiers, who, amidst the ambient violence of an empire in crisis, made the Pentagon and NATO's mission his own. Sure, Bush visited a mosque after 9-11. He declared, 
Islam is peace. But Bush, with bipartisan support, weaved permanent war against Islam into the core of a massive national security state and military machine. Popular Islamophobia ran through official channels, outward into war, and inward into national security state and police repression. For a time. As the war entered crisis, the state lost its monopoly on war on terror violence and ideology. Both ricocheted back into the U.S. and Europe, metastasizing throughout a right-wing resonance machine that insisted that the war that began with the 2001 authorization for the use of military force be fought on the home front, blurring the far enemy and the near. As Ballou notes, this isn't at all new with the war on terror. The contemporary white power movement was from early on the product of wars in Vietnam, Iraq, and Central America ricocheting back home. But this time, a post-9-11 ideology that had been sublimated into official war was set loose in the United States and throughout the white Christian West, a dynamic that has horrifically intensified with the arrival of economic crisis and austerity. And so, the right increasingly began to say the quiet part loud, as Bush had in his reference to a crusade, an apparent slip, on September 16, 2001. In 2007, Representative Tom Tancredo said, If it is up to me, we are going to explain that an attack on this homeland of that nature would be followed by an attack on the holy sites in Mecca and Medina. As Grandin writes, a disillusioned expansionist project turned inward and to the border. 1990s anti-Mexican nativism reemerged, blending with mounting Islamophobia that could no longer be neatly channeled into foreign wars that had lost their noble aura amidst quagmire. In 2005, Houston Representative John Culberson sent out a border security alert warning that al-Qaeda were pretending to be Mexicans to infiltrate the United States. He said, quote, Al-Qaeda terrorists and Chinese nationals are infiltrating our country virtually anywhere they choose between Brownsville to San Diego. A large number of Islamic individuals have moved into homes in Nuevo Laredo and are being taught Spanish to assimilate with the local culture. This was the logical, if utterly cartoonish, extension of the post-9-11 national security state's idea that immigration enforcement and the war on terror were one and the same. As the 2004 National Border Patrol strategy put it, quote, We cannot reduce or eliminate illegal entry by potential terrorists without also dramatically reducing illegal migration across our borders. Or, as the New Zealand shooter apparently wrote on guns covered Dr. Bronner style in a reference to the white power 14 words and the names of military leaders who had fought Muslims, quote, here's your migration compact. He was referring, it seems, to a United Nations compact to deal with a migration crisis that the war on terror has so inflamed. The text of that compact was initially opposed solely by the U.S., though it has, of course, since become a bete noire for the entire European far right. Recall that Trump entered the political arena accusing Obama of being an immigrant, maybe a Muslim one, and thus an illegal occupant of the White House. Trump said in 2011, He doesn't have a birth certificate. He may have one, 
but there's something on that. Maybe religion. Maybe it says he is a Muslim. Like the man who massacred Jews in a Pittsburgh synagogue, like nativist movement godfather John Tanton, like Representative Steve King, the New Zealand shooter was apparently obsessed with, quote, mass immigration and the higher fertility rates of the immigrants, leading to the Great Replacement, or white genocide. After an Islamist terrorist attack, it's always framed as the result of religious extremism. When it's a white power attack like what took place in New Zealand, it's always because of hate, especially hate incubated on the internet. Both analyses erase the historical context that unites both phenomena. The war on terror and Islamist terrorism are locked into a murderous dialectic. The system of globalized violence provides ordinary young men, white, western, and Muslim alike, with ready-made frameworks through which disaffection and alienation, mostly unrelated to religion, can be dressed up as the expression of a mythologized higher meaning justifying mass murder. This is, as Mohammed Mahmoud Uld Mahamadou explained in our interview last week, what Franz Fanon called the fundamentally dichotomizing nature of colonialism being replayed in remixed ways. The framework of right-wing terrorist violence, whether committed by Muslims or against them, offers disaffected young men, experiencing a highly gendered form of alienation across the post-colonial and neoliberal world, what the frontier always did but no longer does, an escape valve. And terrorists aren't the only ones searching for a way out. Well before Reagan's ascent, the neoliberal revolution against the New Deal order was drawing on the premise of permanent expansion. Leading Virginia school economist James Buchanan said that capital mobility would function, quote, precisely the same way as the frontier, by providing an exit option, like an escape valve, whereby capital mobility could undermine the power of a democratic state. Today, at the same time as right-wing reactionaries fixate on hardening the border, we see mobile capital undermining the power of the democratic state everywhere. Just look at Amazon's humiliating power plays against local governments that have been engineered to attract mobile capital at any cost. Meanwhile, even in the midst of their unparalleled domination, the super-rich are fixated on all sorts of wild frontier horizons to escape the hellscape they've created. Jeff Bezos is planning to populate the solar system with one trillion people. Libertarian seasteaders want to create untaxable islands under the unmediated governance of capital. Crypto bros seek their paradise in post-hurricane Puerto Rico. Elon Musk heralds the launch of a new space shuttle as this major breakthrough for humanity when it simply reflects the privatization of NASA's space shuttle program replacing the lofty dreams of planetary exploration benefiting humankind with the hunt for private profit and protective fortresses. Anyhow, that was a remarkably long setup for my interview with one of the smartest historians around. But before we get started, I've got to ask you for your support at patreon.com slash the dig. We need those of you who can afford to contribute to do so so that we can afford to provide all of our content for free and thus make it available to those who cannot afford to support us. We also, however, 
will send you left-wing books in the mail, including Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism, Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity, and Feminism for the 99%, a manifesto by Cynthia Arutza, Tithi Bhattacharya, and Nancy Fraser. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Thank you, and here's Greg Grandin, a professor of history at NYU and the author of seven books, among them Fordlandia, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer and National Book Award, Kissinger's Shadow, The Empire of Necessity, and, most recently, The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. Greg Grandin, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me, Dan. The pioneer frontier myth has been perhaps the most powerful myth in American history. Even before independence, you write, quote, America was thought of as a process of endless becoming and ceaseless unfurling. Or, as the inventor of the frontier thesis, Frederick Jackson Turner, later phrased it, it was a place of perennial rebirth. Before we get into a lot of historical specifics, and there are a lot of them, explain your overall argument about the role of the frontier in American history and the wall, pun very much intended, that is hit. There's two things, right? There's the experience of expansion. There's the reality of expansion. And the United States, even even before it was the United States, when it was still colonial possessions of, of, of Britain, had expansion built into its very premise, its very inception. The, the idea of moving west um, was part of the settlement process. And, and then there's also the ideology of expansion, the way that that ex- social experience was thought about and ideologized and turned into a myth. And the word frontier doesn't come to stand in for both for either the process or the mythology until much later, for a long time, the the word frontier and its cognates, like, like its cognates in other languages, in Spanish, frontera, just merely meant boundary or border or national or security front or military front. Uh, it didn't kind of transform into a site of existential creation, a meeting line between civilization and barbarism until much, much later. But even before the the idea crystallized in the term frontier, expansion was was at the heart of the American process. There's all of nearly all of the major founding fathers, uh, original thinkers that went into conceiving what was the United States, from Benjamin Franklin to James Monroe to Thomas Jefferson, all understood expansion as a central mechanism of a kind of new world republicanism. In the mid-1700s, Benjamin Franklin advanced what might be thought of as the first safety valve thesis, the idea that with an open continent, and of course, this is all I'm talking about on the ideological level, there was no open continent, it was populated in in some places densely so, but the idea that, that because settlers could move west, 
Anglo-Saxon colonists could escape many of the problems of the old world, particularly um, particularly kind of a concentration of poverty and and low carrying capacity of agriculture, where Franklin said, where high population growth in the old world led to poverty and immiseration, in the new world it led to the exact opposite. Uh, you could have as many children as you want, and those children could just move on west and 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 spread a certain kind of American happiness. Uh, Franklin was a kind of secular Promethean. He had this uh, vision of of happiness as an essential quality of the new world. Um, and then you go a little bit later on to to Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson's very first political tract two years before the Declaration of Independence identified the right of migration, freedom of movement, not just as a a fundamental element of natural law, of of, of, uh, natural right, but as in some ways a condition of all other natural rights. The the ability of free men to pull up stakes and move west. And he had a kind of moral history from Saxon Germany to the British Isles to the Americas and then to the West uh, allowed uh, allowed for the exercise of every other freedom that the United States became known for. And then James Madison in the in, in famously in Federalist number 10, the, one of the one of the kind of principal uh, theoretics of the Constitution, understood the ability to expand, to extend the sphere in, in that famous phrase that he used as a way of diluting the factionalism that that befell other republics. This was contrary to the conventional wisdom that you write vastness and virtue contradicted each other. Yeah, that I mean, the Spanish Empire was vast, and the Spanish Empire was corrupt, and, you know, and despotic. And Republicans, Montesquieu, in particular, these French political theorists, thought that you could only have, you could only cultivate Republicanism in a small garden, and and they understood virtue as as only being maintained in small republics. That um, that the greater the territory, the greater the divisionism that that allows for a corruption of republican virtue. Madison's genius was to turn that on its head and said that republican virtue is maintained through expansion. That expansion dilutes factionalism. That it dilutes uh, the 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 concentration of. What today we would call class politics, debt is demanding relief from debt, particularly that. And this is at the heart of the one of the things that is is a fundamental idea of American exceptionalism, that Republican virtue isn't found in any transcendent idea. It's not found in race. I mean, we'll get to how it actually got became conflated at times with race and, and nationalism. But Madison posited Republican virtue as unlike Montesquieu or other Republican theorists as not not being found in any kind of supra-individual or, or, uh, virtue, race, blood color, martial, martial courage, but in diversity, in the pursuit of many different interests, where somebody like Montesquieu saw the pursuit of multiple interests as corrupting virtue, Madison turned that on its head explicitly other other theorists did as well but and but and and posited the pursuit of individual interests as the source of virtue and the way you maintain that is a 
actually through, in his famous phrase, extend the sphere, expand the sphere, and you will take in a diversity of interests and you will uh, you will create, you will, you will dilute the tendency towards extremism, towards concentration of power, towards, towards, towards a kind of, you know, all the corrupting influences of, of a class politics, either class domination or class conflict. Which follows from Franklin's point as well that you referenced earlier. So vast is the territory of North America that it will require many ages to fully settle. Until it is fully settled, labor will never be cheap here. That's also, you know, it's contrary to this, what you write, Malthusian gloom that pervaded Europe. But it's also getting to the same point that Madison was that the conditions that would normally lead to class conflict can be solved by just expanding outward. Yeah, absolutely. So you had Franklin giving a kind of rudimentary political economy that justified expansion. You had uh, Jefferson giving a moral history that justified expansion, and you had Madison giving a, a political theory that justified expansion. And these were these were on the more abstract level, but the experience of expansion uh, and the way it became built into the the American premise on an experiential level was also a lived experience. Was also very was also very powerful. But it's also worth noting that um, that this also allowed for a certain optimism about population growth. I mean, implicit is a is is a is an Anglo. What would, what they're talking about is Anglo-Saxon population growth. There is a kind of racist premise, racialized premise in it. But 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 all of these, uh, uh, Jeff, particularly Jefferson and Franklin, linked the fast growth of population to political happiness, to an expansion of political happiness on a global scale. Which is fascinating, not to get way too far ahead of ourselves, but because the contemporary nativist movement launched at the end of the 1970s is launched by populationists, people who, inspired by things like the population bomb, think that population growth is going to cause mass starvation. Yeah, exactly. And again, not to jump, we have a lot to cover between before before between what we <laughs> just talked about. For nineteen seventy nine, but that's exact. But that's exactly right. Where where and that and that that population hysteria, the idea that Mexicans were breeding too fast, which these these nativists became obsessed with birth rates in Mexico, revealed the racialized assumptions of that earlier linking of happiness to population growth. And I mean, somebody like Franklin explicitly said it in his uh, 1750-something essay in which he made these arguments. So, But yes, it, the contrast is very clear. And just one other point we should touch on before we move on is that this point here, these passages that you're highlighting from Madison and Franklin are one important beginning to an answer to this very long-discussed question of why there has never been a real labor party in the United States. Yeah, and this this does jump a little bit ahead, but, we, you know, the—, the, the to, to We're going to jump around a lot. <laughs> yeah, to, Jackson, to Jacksonian democracy in the 1820s and the 1830s. So, um, uh, you know, one of the first reform movements in the United States was the expansion of, of the right to vote to unleaded and unpropertied white men. And this was unheard of. There was a, there was a radical expansion of, uh, of, of the vote and what we considered democracy to more and more people in the 1820s and the 1830s. You know, historians still kind of uh, uh, highlight 
Andrew Jackson and Jacksonian democracy as this raucous kind of uh, proletarian, uh, egalitarian movement, proletarian peasant egalitarian movement that expanded the radius of liberty. Other more critical historians have have shown how this was correlated to Indian removal and 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 um and 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 to the dispossession of indian land in a, in a number of ways but but one very particular way was politicians were worried about expanding extending the vote to un unleaded and unpropertied members, they were afraid they would vote in socialism. They'd vote in a class politics. Maybe they wouldn't call it socialism at the time, but a, a working class party. And and uh, the ability to... Which I was talking to uh, Dylan Riley about recently in an episode I did on the 18th Premier, that Marx really believed that true the, the bourgeois Democrats would never allow true democracy because it would inevitably lead to socialism. Yeah, and well, and British conservatives would look at the United States and they and their answer to to reformists in Britain, like if the United States can do it, why can't we do it? Their answer was that the United States is a frontier, and and we don't have a frontier, so we can't we can't dilute class politics through the promise of uh, free land. And but it, it you know whether it actually did or didn't, you know, this is a debate. Historians have a debate to what degree, you know, the idea of a safety valve uh, comes in and out of favor among historians at different points. It's hard. It's a hard process to quantify. But there is no doubt that at the time, political observers believed that the that the distribution of quote unquote free land, and it's, of course this is free land that is largely stolen from Native Americans, was one of the mechanisms that allowed for the suppression of a class politics in the United States. I mean, that's the dependency between Jacksonian democracy, one observer at the time called a Caucasian democracy, and I use it as a title in the book for a chapter, and um, and racial violence is is uh, is multiple. There's multiple connections. There's the there's the wealth that's created from chattel slavery, and there's the land that that's taken from Native Americans creates the material basis for this radical expansion of. Caucasian democracy. There's the land that is distributed that uh, that serves as this kind of mechanism that dilutes a class politics. And some observers at the time and subsequently said helped keep um, wages livable because working class oh, oh, the working class had an option of of pulling up stakes and and moving west. Even if in reality it wasn't that easy for a tenement family to move out of the you know move out of New York and and, and travel west of the Mississippi, the threat of that possibly happening apparently kept wages slightly decent and and rents slightly low. But then there's also the ideological function, right? That the United States was a process of expanding a certain kind of liberty by putting down people of color and then defining that liberty in opposition to the people of color they put down, right? There's a way in which freedom as freedom from restraint, uh, which is a another fundamental premise of American exceptionalism, is inherently racialized. So before we move farther along in the history, one thing I want to want to touch on is, as you mentioned earlier, this American idea of freedom was ironically and horrifically, the central organizing principle of a system of brute and violent domination. And a dominant 
early formulation of this idea of American freedom and liberty, you write, was rooted in a so-called germinal theory of American liberty. The idea, which was embraced by Jefferson and others, was that American white people had their origins as free peoples in Saxon Germany, who then fled to Britain and then on to the New World. And you write, quote, For Jefferson, the ability to migrate wasn't just an exercise of natural rights, but the source of rights, or at least their historically necessary condition. Liberty was made possible by the right to colonize, letting free men, when their freedom was threatened, move on to find free land and carry the torch from one place to another. Before we move on, um, explain this folk theory of American liberty and, and how it shaped American justifications for domination and expansion. This is some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier that 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 Jefferson quote is from his first political manifesto a few a few years written a few years before the Declaration of Independence and it understood the right to migrate and the right to move as not just a natural right but the condition of natural rights right the, the not being pinned down not being not falling in thrall to despots and and it was a it was a history that Virginia tidewater elites in particular traced back to Saxon Germany there was this notion that Teutonic Saxon Free men was the origins of, of, a, of a certain kind of Saxon liberty, of a natural law liberty, and that their movement to the British Isles was, was an escape from Germanic attempts to submit them to European feudalism. And so they built a theory of movement and a theory of rights into the history of how they understood Western settlement from the British Isles across the Atlantic into the Americas. And we'll get to this later, but this is the, this is the theory that Frederick Jackson Turner kind of overthrows in many ways. And I won't jump ahead, but this germ theory that what, was, what is good about the United States and, and the idea of freedom is something that, that migrates with settlement out of Europe to Britain, to the United States, and by extension, to maintain it, to keep the torch burning, so to speak, it has to keep moving. It has to keep moving west with the sun. You open the early chapters of your book looking at the frontier before there was a fixed border, the the context of expansion, settlement, the taming and exploitation of nature, and of course, native dispossession. And a key part of this story is a reexamination of the Revolutionary War, which is something we've touched on in past episodes. But the central incident that I think it's so important to hammer home is King George's Royal Proclamation of 1763, which barred white subjects from settling across the Alleghenies, which recognized, at least implicitly, indigenous allies from the Seven Year War as a distinct group with their own rights, or as distinct groups with their own rights vis-a-vis the crown. And to white settlers, this was an intolerable violation of their sovereignty, you write, quote, since they defined their sovereignty as the right to move west confirming to the British colonists that their interests were now decoupled from the interests of the British crown. 
And so you write, quote, The Declaration of Independence was, among other things, a revolt against the Royal Proclamation of 1763. Explain how the Revolutionary War was, in many ways, and this is not what is taught in most schools, a revolt against royal limits on white settlement. Well, yeah, it was pretty much what you just what you just summed up in in the Seven Year War between Catholic France and and Protestant Great Britain was a world worldwide conflict, and and its theater, major theater of operations was in the Trans Mississippi Valley in west of Appala- uh, west of Appalachia, west of the Alleghenies, and when Britain won that war, and and both France and Great Britain drew on indigenous allies in the fight. Uh, in in North America, and it was a brutal war. It was years of of what we now would call guerrilla warfare with irregulars on both sides. Uh, what became known as the Rangers and great uh, on the side of the Britain that that mimicked what they understood to be indigenous in, indigenous warfare tactics that were just brutal and uh, including scorched earth campaigns that just rampaged through towns and villages. And when the war was finally over, Britain felt it had um, it had to honor its obligations with its Native American allies. And it tried to set up two basically distinct colonies. It, the Royal Proclamation Line in 1763 tried to ban or did ban, at least, you know, formally, settlement west of the Alleghenies, the crest of the Allegheny, the foreline of the Allegheny Mountains, where the, you know, at the point where, where waterways ran down east into the Atlantic, settlers weren't supposed to move west. You know, it wasn't a disinterested policy. The Great Britain wanted to maintain access to the fur trade uh, without, without having to compete with, with eastern seaboard settlers. But it was, in some ways, quite a radical recognition of indigenous sovereignty, uh, of the political agency, to use a, a modern word, of Native Americans. And this, um, this proclamation was, was intolerable on a cross-class spectrum of, of white settlers. The war itself created knowledge of the Forbidden Zone among the volunteers and the militiamen and the, and the rangers. And they, it wasn't, that wasn't going to be reversed. They saw the bounty of the land. They saw the richness of the soil. And there was, there was no keeping out uh, settlers and squatters. And then on a... One veteran who wanted in on it was George Washington, who sent an agent to secretly and illegally buy up frontier lands. He was confident that, quote, it was a temporary expedient to quiet the minds of the Indians. And that it would ultimately, that ultimately, quote, it must fall. It must fall, meaning the proclamation line must fall. Right. So there was the settlers and the squatters, and then there was the speculators, the, you know, the, the higher up speculators. And, um, you know, there's great, there's great, very critical books about Washington and land speculation. I mean, there's nothing in, in my book that, that, is, that, is, um, that, that can't be found in more critical histories. Of course, there's a lot of uncritical histories of Washington. But yes, it's fairly clear that, that the, the war itself, that in his involvement in the war, war was was driven by 
I mean, you know, Donald, let's just put it this way. Donald Trump's real estate, <laughs> the venal real estate dealings has a long pedigree in the United States, reaching back to before the, before the founding of the United States. And George Washington, I mean, a lot of those Virginia Tidewater planters were, were, were deeply involved in Western speculation and the war and their involvement in the Seven Year War and then the resolution of the war and then the refusal to be penned in east of, of the Alleghenies um, and the, the royal population line is 1763, the American Revolution is 1776. I mean, there's many different causes of the American Revolution that we can't get into. and But certainly this land hunger and refusal to be contained, just a, just a, a reaction and rejection of containment. In total offense at the very notion that indigenous people had rights which might come at the expense of their right to settle wherever they wish. Uh, absolutely. And to go back to um, that Thomas Jefferson manifesto, which I mentioned earlier as one of the three kind of political theories of expansion that un- that, that, that explain uh, the United States or the way expansion is built into the premise of the United States. Thomas Jefferson is writing that in re- in reaction to the the proclamation line, right? The, that what just just as Saxon lords couldn't couldn't presume to exert authority over free men who escaped Saxony and moved to the British Isles, then the British crown can't presume to exert its authority over free men who crossed the Atlantic and created new societies and new lands. And again, that track doesn't explicitly talk about race, although it does identify Saxon, his Saxon forebears as the, as, as the original free men, the racial implications are clear. Who has the right to movement? Who has the right to escape? Who has the right to set up new societies? Is, uh, is, was for Jefferson a, a white right? And it's amazing how much this all hides in plain sight. The New York Times every July 4th publishes a, I think like a full page spread reproduction of the Declaration of independence, and it's right there. Complaints by the revolutionaries against the crown for supporting indigenous sovereignty, and the American victory in the Revolutionary War, in turn, was a disaster for indigenous people. The Treaty of Paris, which ended the war, not only recognized the independence of the thirteen colonies, which is what I think Americans often, you know, what they know about the result of the revolution would be that, but also you point out, ceded to them the indigenous-held land between the Alleghenies and Mississippi River. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. came into the world doubling its size immediately with the, with the international legal act that recognizes the United States also doubled its size and created the and created the fundamental structure between states and territories that would then drive the United States west across the continent like a whirly gig. I mean, you know, we could talk about the denial of this and how it's hidden in plain sight. I mean, that's a whole nother podcast, I think. The, <laughs> you know, the the you know, the, you know, you know, the, and how this has been repackaged as an all but all but universally as a war for universal freedom. Yeah, I mean, yeah, these these <laughs> these truths, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All these truths to be self-evident: <laughs> the right to sl- move west and slaughter with impunity. <laughs> self-evident is uh, one of those words that should uh, <laughs> yeah. cue in any skeptical listener for the signs of hegemony. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, at this point, 
The settler hostility to any restriction on settlement that had been directed against the crown gets redirected against the settler government, which, of course, also wants to expand west. But as as Paul Freimer, I think, really brilliantly shows in his book, uh, Building an American Empire, they had a much more methodical approach because they're a government that didn't sit well with ordinary settlers. And you tell the story of Frederick Stump, who moved beyond the mountains with his wife and children They were then reportedly killed by indigenous people. And in response, Stump became like a psychopathic professional Indian killer, slaughtering men, women, children. Quaker authorities in Philadelphia captured him. Stump was then freed by a mob. He then fled to Nashville, became a major slaver, plantation owner, and whiskey distiller. And still, while being a literal outlaw, becomes the the captain in Tennessee's first militia expedition, expelling Creeks and Choctaws as an agent of the state. It's a remarkable and disturbing story. What does it reveal about the relationship between official and vigilante violence against both natives and black slaves in the creation of the frontier? The irony, I mean, this is the the process. It gets it gets in in some ways it gets replicated because the the then then the the founders of the United States, the the political elite, the political class that 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 emerge from Washington forward, including his cabinet, all of a sudden you have responsibility for administration. And I mean, there were interests why many of those elite that elite political class wanted to stop squatter and settlement movement west that they had because they. They they had their own spec, speculating interests and didn't want a free for all west of the Alleghenies, but but immediately that animus that was directed at the British Crown gets redirected at the federal government. There's a there's it's and 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 then you have then you have these political elites trying to stop of of, of now an independent United States trying to stop settlement west. You saw this across the board, but Pennsylvania, which was governed by Quakers, in particularly so, because they, I mean, they didn't quite recognize Native Americans as equals, but they did perhaps more so than any other group within the founding, the 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 founders of the United States, and so you had you had these settlers moving west in Pennsylvania that they couldn't stop, and um and of course they, there was there was racialized conflict when they when they dispossessed Native Americans of their land and Native Americans fought back. And this one person, Frederick Stump, is an interesting example because he he does become a psychopathic Indian killer in the sense that he killed Indians and then he adopted, he killed like Indians, supposedly, the scalping and all of the brutalism that brutality that was attributed to Native Americans, white settlers like Stump adopt and and mimic. And there's a that there's a psychological component to this that other thinkers going back in the 1960s have pointed out there's a certain kind of a sibling genocide or there's a ways in which that you um you you claim kindred brotherhood with Native Americans by slaughtering them and then inheriting the land and um you know and then the land is bounty for blood spilt in some ways. So the there's there's a process in which vigilante violence becomes deeply ideological and psychological in its in its in 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 its in in the political culture it creates and stump is an, stump is a what I mean I just followed stump because the, the 
the trail was clear. And then as he moves west, he gets arrested. The Quakers, the Quaker authorities in Philadelphia try to put a lid on it. He's freed by the Paxton Boys, which was another kind of rampaging group of Scotch-Irish settlers that refused to submit to Philadelphia authority and, and, and dispossess Native Americans in western Pennsylvania with, with quite a bit of uh, bloodshed. The stumps flee down. There's almost like a back door down the Mississippi Valley, down into Tennessee, you know, through the Cumberland Gap, all of that, you know, area. And then, and then, and then he becomes established as a total man of the community. He becomes a planter, a slaver uh, in Nashville. He becomes a militia. He becomes a, I, I think, a, a high, maybe a lieutenant in Andrew Jackson's militia, where they participate in the in the destruction of the Creeks and other Native American groups. Benjamin Franklin has, you know, <laughs> for all of his, you know, for all of the, he, he was quite an acute observer. He had this expression, he had, the, he had this very interesting expression, bad subjects become useful subjects. You know, they, you know, there's, there's ways in which this is the, these are the frontline agents of settler colonialism, advancing the perimeter of settlement, even even as they kind of co- come into conflict with the constituted authorities uh, on the East. And this is just a replication in some ways of the, of the dynamics of the American Revolution. The, you know, the Western expansion is in some ways a permanent revolution. You know, the, the American Revolution is a, is a revolution that's staged over and over and over again as the U.S. moves West. In terms of that, that point you just made about bad subjects becoming useful subjects. You write about Andrew Jackson that all of the members, leading members of the founders generation, you know, Madison and Monroe certainly didn't like Jackson and Jefferson hated him. Uh, Jackson, according to Jefferson, quote, is one of the most unfit men I know of for such a place, i.e. the presidency. He has had very little respect for laws and constitutions. His passions are terrible. He is a dangerous man. But you write that these respectable, dispassionate gentlemen of the founders' generation, they all depended on Jackson to prosecute the murderous wars that were the foundation of their prized order. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and Jackson had a critique of of them. He had a great line about Jefferson is a, the best Republican in theory, but the worst on practice. Meaning, you know, all of the Republican. I mean, all of those early Republican presidents. And this is a kind of typology that I draw heavily on on New Left thinkers. William Appleman Williams in Contours of American History he calls the first run of presidents up to John Quincy Adams, the the you know the high high mercantilists like they. They wanted to expand. They wanted the continent. They imagined the U.S. expanding west and the continent becoming bleached white. But they didn't quite know how to realize that vision. They felt they had to abide by some treaty obligations. Washington signed new treaties with other indigenous communities. They felt like they had to honor British obligations to certain indigenous communities. They they had to represent the United States to European powers and not seem totally barbaric. And so there was there was certain constraints on on wanting it all, but not knowing how to get it all. 
and what stood in the way of a, of a continent bleached white or a continent, you know, without a blot on it, as Jefferson said, were, you know, Native Americans, obviously, um, increasing reliance on African Americans for, for, for labor and, and a growing class of free African, free people of color as slavery, the slave system produced through demographic change and through other mechanisms of a growing class of 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 people of color who were who weren't slaves and but also um after 1820 uh Mexico Mexico stood in the way of the Pacific so the the and Spain retained Florida and there were all of these obstacles in the way to this vision and and th- that first run of Republican presidents, uh, kind of high mercantile, that ended with John Quincy Adams, they had they had the desire for it all, but they didn't know how to realize it all. And that and and that brings us to Andrew Jackson, or they didn't know how to realize it all without without hypocrisy. Yeah, Jackson wedded desire to to action, right? To realization, uh, invaded Florida, murdered Creeks, destroyed, you know, waged war on, on the Creek nation, uh, set the stage for the, the move into the move into Texas and Mexico and, you know, the beat the British at the battle of New Orleans, uh, waged violent destruction against, against, uh, against native Americans, including then when he was president, Signing the Indian Removal Act, um, which really was the start of it all. Uh, a good example of this is John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams was the last president of that of that run before before Andrew Jackson's election, and, and was defeated by Jackson. Correct? He was defeated by Jackson, one term, kind of Jimmy Carter like. John Quincy Adams had a national program. He thought that the wealth from the West should be used for national improvement. I mean, I wouldn't call it social democracy, but if we're, if we're talking on complete, you know, platonic abstractions, it was closer to a so you know it was it, it was a strong national government that was invested in in improvement, social improvement, and things like education, and um, and he was defeated by Jackson, and he wound up becoming radicalized by the Jacksonians, which we could talk about a little bit later. But when he was Secretary of State, and Jackson took the initiative and invaded Florida and uh, and and hung hung a hung a bunch of uh, of, of uh, british authorities basically set the basically set the terms for the annexation of florida and john quincy adams supported it to claim that that move was legal so this is that's just an, one example of the of some of the contradictions uh, between that first run of presidents and then and then what ja- and then jackson coming to power and and realizing the 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 desire this reminds me of of Obama, who we're supposed to sort of admire for him struggling over drone strike decisions and targeted killings like he's some sort of philosopher king, but still doing him. And then Trump, who comes out and impressed on his admiration for Putin, by I think it was Bill O'Reilly, says, Putin is a killer. And he responds, there are a lot of killers. We have a lot of killers. Well, you think our country is so innocent? Yeah. Well, it is, except the difference is uh, Adams then is elected to Massachusetts only uh, one, uh, not only House seat, I'm sorry, a House seat for Massachusetts. And he spends the rest of his life as a, in, as a member of the House of Representatives. And he becomes increasingly, increasingly radicalized. I want to get to that late, him more later. I want to I want to read from his um, 
speech announcing Poke later, which is incre- remarkable. Yeah, yeah, it's an incredible speech. Going back to, to, to Jackson and this inability of the founder's generation to clearly express the bloody means required to achieve their stated ends, you share this anecdote of Jefferson blaming Britain for riling up indigenous people. And Jefferson said that the situation, quote, will oblige us to pursue them to extermination or drive them to new seats beyond our reach. What he was saying was that this brutality wasn't a choice, but something more like destiny, actions that were necessary almost precisely because they were involuntary, when when in reality, of course, expansion and native dispossession were chosen policy. My question is, do you see this sort of sentiment, this ideology, as a root of this long-running American commitment to the idea of national innocence? Is, is this ideology, which has held firm for so long, rooted in Americans seeing Western expansion as this unfolding of a natural process? There's, there's a couple of things here. Certainly, I mean, Jefferson was part of a generation that rose up, uh, declared war against the British crown, defeated British colonialism, and, and created a, 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 something unheard of in the world, a, a republic in the, in the new world. And they understood themselves as agents of history. They understood what they were doing as, as innovative, as an act of enormous will. But then when they, when they discussed the consequences of this on Native Americans and the violence that uh, and destruction of Native Americans, they almost they just lapsed into the passive voice and and they acted as if they were just being propelled along uh, against their will, uh, you know, just as a leaf on the stream. They talked. They talked amazingly. Uh, it was con- the, the the passive voice was consistent among so many of these people who were very active in the destruction of Native Americans. The other thing is that yes, it's a it's a, the separation of the political realm from the economic realm is a is a major strut of American exceptionalism. The idea that that politics should should remain separate from economics, and yet. Westward expansion entailed enormous state intervention on every level, including indigenous removal, the use of federal troops to uproot, dispossess, and force march Native American communities west. That was a political act. And and yet, setting aside that, Jefferson Jefferson issued clear instructions of government-orchestrated debt dispossession through debt and to how to lock Native American communities into a kind of dependency on commodities. Some of the most chilling passages in your book, really. Yeah. And, and, how, you know, and how to force them into debt and then, and then how to use that debt to, to basically take their land. And he explicitly says that we can't leave these to private trading houses because trading houses, private interests can't afford to, to basically sell at such a cheap level that it would, that it would, that it would lock, would create a significant amount of dependency and debt. So these have to be government trading houses. I mean, it's a clear recognition of the role of a, of a centralized political authority in the mechanisms of expansion, whether it be predatory debt or whether whether it be 
the military dispossession, along with everything else, the the surveying, the building of roads, the you know, the irrigation. And yet there's a there's a there's a kind of deep denial of the role of the political in the economic. And this is this is obviously a fundamental strut of American exceptionalism, of American nationalism, um, and and it's there. It's there at the present, at the very present of of a of westward expansion, and how this westward expansion is really just a a kind of staging of a permanent revolution on the frontier over and over again until until the U.S. hits the hits the Pacific. This American innocence embedded in American exceptionalism requires that Americans be the agents, the active agents of everything good and great and glorious. But then when bad things happen, they simply happen to us. And yeah, or Britain gets brained, or they, I mean... The, outside yeah. agitators. <laughs> yeah, outside agitators. And then drawing from this line of analysis and bringing it into the present, this national innocence forged in America's auto-amnesiac approach to native dispossession and Western expansion is an important origin point of what causes Americans today to not understand, quote, why they hate us. And also that immigrants are here because we were there. We're unable to see our own role in anything. Right. There is a blindness, a blindness, a confusion of cause and effect, a refusal to see the connections. I mean, what what obviously we would call blowback these days. And yes, a denial of the consequences of action. As we've discussed Andrew Jackson was a murderous psychopath. He made a name for himself <laughs> with brutally violent campaigns, and his portrait is in Trump's Oval Office, reminder. Brutally violent campaigns against the Creeks in the War of 1812, campaigns against the Seminoles in Chickasaw, and he used, you write, a madman theory to warn group after group of indigenous people that they would be destroyed if they didn't succumb. He wrote, quote, or he said, I'm not sure if he wrote or said this, quote, fire shall consume their towns and villages. He warned those who might support the Creeks, and their lands shall be divided among the whites. He he kept Indian skulls of those he killed. His soldiers skinned dead natives to use the skin as bridle reins for their horses, just to underline the depth and depravity of his violence. But what I want to talk about is the role that Andrew Jackson, before he became president and as president, the role he played in embodying this deepening of settler colonial violence and racism and that settler colonial violence being the core of American conceptions of freedom. Um, you write that he started off, quote, profiting greatly from the nexus of slavery, slave trading and Indian dispossession that continued to pull settlers through the Cumberland Gap into Tennessee and Kentucky. And you recount this remarkable and revealing story from 1811. When Jackson was moving a coffle of slaves down the Natchez Trace, and a federal agent stopped Jackson to ensure that the slaves were legally owned, if I have it right. The trace passed through Chickasaw and Choctaw Territory, and according to one version of the story, Jackson pointed to his copy of the U.S. Constitution as, quote, sufficient passport to take me wherever my business leads me. He then went on to launch a campaign to have the agent removed, saying, are we free men or are we slaves? Is this real or is it a dream? As you write, he, quote, took the mere request for documents proving the ownership of slaves to be a form of slavery. 
what does this story and the figure of Jackson more generally reveal about this fundamental nature of American freedom that we've discussed, of American libertarianism being the insider freedom to dominate outsiders free from government interference? This event happened in 1811. It was a few years after Congress had had abolished the slave trade, but there was still internal slave trading. But um, this was down the Natchez Trace, which was an old indigenous road that supposedly was under indigenous sovereignty, but there were federal agents appointed to make sure that whatever slave trading that was going on was legal. This this represented a moment where the federal government was was trying to get some control over the slave trade and, and particularly over these frontier slavers like like Jackson and and it's a remarkable moment i mean that Jackson could the outrage of just being asked for papers like being asked for your driver's license and taking that as a form of slavery you know it was it was these two very different notions of sovereignty i mean it's part of the repeating cycle that happens over and over again that we talked about the way that the refusal to be penned in east of the Alleghenies under the British crown that gets reproduced, uh, that anger and animus and resentment and grievance, that settler entitlement gets reproduced and directed at the federal, at an independent federal Republican government. And Jackson is, is embodying and performing this in this event that is, that is unparalleled. And I think in its, in its meaning, are we free men or are we slaves? The idea that just being asked <laughs> to, to prove, you know, the pedigree of the slaves that you're trans, you're, you're transporting, uh, as, as it is itself an act of slavery. Is um, is ca- encapsulates this kind of definition of freedom as uh, as freedom from restraint, as uh, you know, there's different ways in which freedom can be conceived, and one of the ways which is is fundamental to American exceptionalism is freedom as freedom from restraint, and this goes to the so-called negative freedom. Yeah, negative freedom, and this goes on. I mean, this is this is what we 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 talked about earlier with the expansion of Caucasian democracy that Jackson presides over as president. The radical extension of suffrage to unpropertied and unleaded men creates a kind of freedom, but it goes hand in hand with indigenous dispossession and move west, which is creates both the this kind of political mechanism, which ensures that that poor voters don't vote in socialism or some kind of class politics. But then it also is a expansion West also creates the material base of this generalized prosperity that is, that is unique in world history. More and more people could understand themselves as free men. That is not, that isn't, that was not an illusion. That was true. <laughs> you know, there were, you know, there, and it was fundamentally racialized. The wealth created from chattel slavery control over the labor of people of color, the land stolen from people of color, the territory later on when the U.S. moves into Mexico from people of color creates the material foundation of, of the, of the, uh, that allows for the generalization of, of, of wealth, to democratization of wealth as never before experienced. As white settlers claim a greater liberty by putting down people of color, they define that liberty in opposition to people of color, right? That become the, uh, the ideological opposition. Freedom as freedom from restraint is understood in relational terms. You, you, the absolute freedom is defined 
in opposition to the absolute servitude of and subordination of people of color. And this is the foundational premise in which race and class become imprinted on each other and, and becomes inextricable and why a certain kind of individual rights can't be severed from white supremacy. It's ideological in a profound way, but it's also material in the sense that the labor and land of people of color created the wealth that allowed for the that allowed for the expansion of Caucasian democracy. Which requires an ideology that functions to explain that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Common Wind, Afro-American Currents in the Age of the Haitian Revolution by Julius S. Scott, with a foreword by Marcus Redeker. The Common Wind is a gripping and colorful account of the intercontinental networks that tied together the free and enslaved masses of the New World. Having delved deep into the gray obscurity of official 18th century records in Spanish, English, and French, Julius Scott has written a powerful history from below. Scott follows the spread of rumors of emancipation and the people behind them, bringing to life the protagonists in the slave revolution. Though the common wind is credited with having, quote, opened up the black Atlantic with a rigor and a commitment to the power of written words, the manuscript remained unpublished for 32 years. Now, after receiving wide acclaim from leading historians of slavery in the New World, it has been published by Verso for the first time, with a foreword by the academic and author Marcus Redeker. The Common Wind, Afro-American Currents in the Age of the Haitian Revolution, by Julius S. Scott, with a foreword by Marcus Redeker. Out now from Verso Books. As you mentioned earlier, John Quincy Adams, surprisingly enough, is a prescient and powerful critic of this, at least after he leaves the Oval Office. He returns to to Congress and becomes a, a, a leading and somewhat lonely enemy of Jackson and a critic of this sort of white solidarity built on, built upon hatred of the other and settler violence. And you quote from this remarkable speech he gives on the House floor while James Polk, who will go on to be president soon thereafter, is the Speaker of the House. And he addresses Polk as, quote, the slaveholder sitting in the chair. And he goes on and says, Do not you, an Anglo-Saxon slaveholding exterminator of Indians, from the bottom of your soul, hate the Mexican-Spaniard Indian, emancipator of slaves, and abolisher of slavery? Is your southern and southwestern frontier not sufficiently extensive? Are you not large and unwieldy enough already? Have you not Indians enough to expel from the land of their father's sepulchers and to exterminate? And he goes on to warn that war is going to lead to more war with Mexico. And he says, quote, The banners of freedom will be the banners of Mexico, and your banners, I blush to speak the word, will be the banners of slavery. It's perhaps one of the most 
powerful anti-war speeches in the, in the nation's history up until Martin Luther King's uh, condemnation of, of the Vietnam War. It is, again, Adams, John Quincy Adams was not opposed to expansion. He wanted, he imagined the United States uh, comprising sea to sea and, 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 uh, and, a, and understanding that that expansion as as creating a constitute a kind of constitution of liberty, um, but as a member of the House, well, he saw the Jacksonian Revolution the way Jimmy Carter must have saw the Reagan Revolution as overturning, you know, whatever minimal program of social reform that he represented. But also, he became radicalized in a way that was that that, that this speech really. I mean, this was a speech condemning. Uh, Jacksonians, machinations to take Texas, to foment a rebellion in Texas. We don't have to get into the details, but Texas, and he thought Texas, the the war in Texas and the secession of Texas from Mexico and the annexation of Texas would lead to a war with Mexico, which it did. He was right. The secession of Texas was a revolt against newly independent Mexico outlying slavery. I mean, this is just, again, the re- the repetition cycle that we've been talking about. But but this speech was, which was, I think, in 1836, if I recall correctly, or, uh, yes, 1836. It, I mean, he basically identified it as, he was the first person to talk about the United States as locked in a forever war. He thought it began with the destruction of the Creeks in 1812 and just continued forward. You know, he didn't use the word blowback, obviously, that great Chalmers Johnson phrase that Johnson got from the CIA to talk about the consequences unintended consequences of U.S. foreign intervention, he used the word recoil, the recoil. Uh, and, and he went, he, he justified uh, Native American attacks on settlers as the price paid. I mean, we know Lincoln understood the price that the retribution for the, for the lore of the lash that the United States, uh, that the United States benefited from. But Adams here was was basically saying that Adams was like Ward Churchill after 9/11. I know. He was like Ward Churchill. I know. He was exactly. He was Ward, Ward Churchill. It's a remarkable speech. It's it's really really un- um, and and any opposed he again, he wasn't opposed to expansion but he was opposed to Jacksonian expansion. He was opposed to Texas because Texas represented Jacksonianism and extremism, Indian slaughter, the expansion of chattel slavery, endless war, and the dilution of national and 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 I mean he had two fears. One, he thought that war would rip that ripped the United States apart, which of course it did during the Civil War, but he also feared that it would bind it together, that that war would become the only bond that created a sense of national purpose. You know, he was right on both counts in many ways, because that earlier abstract Madisonian notion of extend the sphere and you create the conditions for diversity and dilution of factionalism, that's fine on a theoretical level, but you only extend the sphere through war and militarism and violence. So there is a way in which expansion doesn't become the condition of freedom, it becomes understood as freedom and everything that goes with expansion, which is basically war and militarism. So Adams was... The speech is remarkable, and then he goes on to oppose the Mexican-American War, and he dies at his desk in the House of Representatives after voting no of a law that was that was that was extending honors and honorifics to generals, and you know who who defeated Mexico. So it would be like as if. <laughs> 
mean, basically, he said he's like Ward Churchill. He's also a little bit like Representative Omar, you know. Like he was, I mean, he was so far out there. And then he, then he drops dead after casting a no vote. I mean, who today would cast a no vote that denied, you know, some kind of tribute? Yeah, like saluting, saluting our troops. Yeah, yeah. If, if it's just like, yeah banal but profoundly ideological for all of its banality kind of you know support our troops measure yeah yeah and then he and he votes no and he and he and then he drops dead on his desk i mean it's unbelievable moving on to to talk about the mexican american war polk who adams calls the slaveholder sitting in the chair uh polk becomes president yeah and then he calls the jacksonians the slave breeder and then he calls the, some other jacksonian the slave slave breeder i mean he was he was really just uh he was really quite amazing adams yeah so polk becomes president moves on to annex texas declares war on mexico all in the name of perpetual peace on a secured frontier and you write that for a long time historians regarded the mexican-american war as quote small, inevitable, or largely inconsequential, save, of course, for the huge territorial expansion that it resulted in. But you follow others in arguing that, in fact, this war was deeply consequential in a number of ways. It pushed forward the polarization that would lead to the Civil War, and it fomented a mass culture of vicious and racist violence, including a generation of war veteran presidents, Zachary Taylor, Franklin Pierce, and the Confederacy's Jefferson Davis. Explain the the old conventional wisdom about the role of the American, the Mexican-American War. Well, there wasn't much conventional wisdom. It wasn't, it just really wasn't, uh, it really wasn't thought of as very consequential, except that it filled out the United States to the Pacific and more or less along, you know, with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo uh, and the Gadsden Purchase a few years later, finally settled on a, on a Southern boundary with Mexico. Historians now, such as Steve Hahn and Amy Greenberg, uh, they understand, they've argued for its consequence in, 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 in many different ways. It went on for a lot, much longer than it was thought, thought it would last. It, it generated more casualties. It deepened uh, violent racism, which previously had been directed at Native Americans on the frontier, but it expen- extended that, that brutality now to, to Mexicans. It fused war on the frontier with the with the experience of settlement. It blew back into eastern territories a, a kind of racism. You know, there was th- that free land movement had a very radical potential or current. It wasn't all just Jacksonian conservative uh, violence put at the maintenance of a of a small small government uh weak federal government uh, republicanism there, there was a there, there had been uh, uh, one current of the free land movement that was quite radical but the mexican american war in some ways racialized that movement and infected that movement and 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 blew back into eastern eastern politics um settlers who moved who who were who fought in the war then moved west uh, with the backing of the of the federal government and basically continued the war that started in Me- in in Mexico against Native Americans and expanded it to California and to Oregon 
There's ways in which it was it was consequential in all of those ways, and not least in finally fixing a southern border, in separating, uh, I guess in terms of the arguments of my book, it, it basically separates the border from the frontier. Up until that point, the frontier and the border are kind of coterminous to a large extent, moving west. And what you have now is a fixed border on, on the south, and then a frontier that is continuing to move west. And it disaggregates those two phenomenon in ways that become consequential in the reconceptualization of the frontier. It also disaggregates the the literal juridical military border and the frontier for American capital. You write about how Sam Houston, the former president of the Republic of Texas, was an advocate of the All Mexico Movement, which was a popular movement to take all of Mexico. And that wouldn't happen because the strand of American white supremacy opposed to incorporating so many people deemed non-white, even in a subjugated fashion, won out over the the more expansionist version of white supremacy. But But you write, quote, Within a half century, United States interests would come to control nearly absolutely oil production, railroads, utilities, livestock, agriculture, and ports. And in addition to that, huge swaths of indigenous land were seized and went to U.S. companies like Cargill for export agriculture. Meanwhile, Mexico's low-wage labor was harvested for agricultural and other work in the U.S., the beginning of what would become this critical, long-running, deeply patterned relationship between U.S. capital and Mexican migrant labor. Explain why it's important to put the history of the U.S.-Mexican border into this context of, of, of conquest and capital and this moment of divergence between the new settled southern border and this expansive frontier for American capital. Well, it's consequential for for two main reasons. One is that it allows for the abstraction of the idea of the frontier, which will, uh, which I imagine we'll get to when we get to Frederick Jackson Turner and the transformation of of the phrase or word frontier from an actual place, a boundary or border, a military front into a civilizational zone, a site of existential creation. And then it's also consequential because it because it does fix the border and the border itself becomes a, a vector, a site, an axis of a certain kind of of a racialized politics that we're now living with the consequences of. But behind that racialized politics is a racialized political economy. The border becomes an axis of North American capitalism. And one of the things that I try to do with, in the book is, is, is weave in the history of Mexico. And the, the book is overwhelmingly focused on the United States, but the history of Mexico itself is, is important in many different ways. But Mexico becomes the um, first country where where a rising political coalition in alliance with finance capital uh, embarks on a nation building program in in Mexico. This is in the 1860s. We can 
you know, the, the, there's, a, there's the French op, uh, there's a French occupation of Mexico that corresponds with the Civil War, and I don't know how how deep into the weeds we want to get into that. But basically, after the U.S. Civil War and after the French occupation, after liberal Mexican liberals kick out the French, uh, Mexico becomes the site of the, the the first experiment in liberal nation building. There's a great book by John Mason Hart, Empire and Revolution, that talks about the Mexican Revolution in 1910 as the first third world reaction to the penetration of U.S. capital and the transformation of a nation, of an agricultural peasant nation into an agricultural exporting nation to the United States, in which U.S. capital takes over every major realm of economic activity, mining and agriculture and transportation and finance and communication, and then later on, electricity and power, uh, U.S. capital is dominant. And the reaction of Mexico, the uprising in 1910, is enormously consequential in Every, and I know we're not up to that yet, but this is this is why Mexico is important. And so, yes, the boundary is the border is created, and settlement stops. Even though there are these, there are people who refuse, who don't want the border to stop. That imagine pushing into Mexico, either with the all Mexico movement that wanted to take all of Mexico after the after the U.S. conquered Mexico in the Mexican American War, or subsequent mercenary movements, William Walker famously. William Walker would go on to invade and 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 occupy and 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 uh, uh, Nicaragua famously in the eighteen in the eighteen fifties. He first had a had a, a trial run in Mexico. But for the most part settle settlement stopped. The first part the border remained fixed. But capital kept moving in. And so for those two main reasons, one, it freed up the idea of the frontier to become much more of an abstraction. And two, it created a border that became the central axis of how North American capitalism was organized. And then later on, the organization of American capitalism after the Civil War leading up to the Mexican Revolution. And then there's after the Mex- then there's the, the turmoil and tumultuous Mexican Revolution that incredible insurgency which creates the Mexican Revolution the Mexican Constitution in 1917 is the first the world's first social democratic constitution which we could talk about later but then after the Mexican Revolution is settled and institutionalized and then there's a reorganization of North American capital that eventually culminates in NAFTA so to just to just to back up and put it simply the con- the 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 two significant consequences is the is that the it frees the the idea of the frontier to be ideologized and then it creates the border which becomes the central axis of North American capital. And another important part of the story to tell on the US side of the border is that the the creation of this hard border with Mexico leads to a hardening of violence and the development of a brutally subjugating order in the Southwest that's really the Latino-Hispanic Chicano corollary of Jim Crow. 80 to 100,000 people were left on the other side of the border. They were disenfranchised. They were denied citizenship. Citizenship was decided by states at the time. So uh, there was, there was, you know, they, they were denied rights. They were, they eventually had their land dispossessed. And again, this is part of the repeating cycle. We didn't talk about the Louisiana Purchase, We, but, you know, there's Indian removal. There's ways in which the United States 
territories presiding over subjugated people had started with the Louis- you know, even before the Louisiana Purchase in 1803-1804, but, but con- certainly continued with the Mexican-American War and the settlement of the Treaty, had, uh, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which left 80 to 100,000 subjugated formerly Mexican citizens on the north side of the border. Yeah, and we did skip over Indian removal, which I believe un- happened under President Jackson, obviously, and that's 50,000 people removed from east of the Mississippi violently to the West. Yeah. And, and just in what in Indian removal, I mean, that's the official Indian, that's the, you know, the 1830 Indian removal law, but Indian removal is an ongoing process. There were hundreds of Indian removal, you know, rem, you know, it just was a repeated over and over again as the frontier moved West. Yeah. So this is the context, the historical context within this, which this repeating pattern of frontier violence is repeated. And with the Treaty of Guadalupe, Hidalgo, there's a new population to subjugate to this order of violent settler colonial expansion. And you have in the Southwest miners, ranchers, and railroad companies taking millions of acres from indigenous people and Mexicans who were formerly Mexican citizens. You have Anglo vigilante and state forces like the Texas Rangers who terrorize, disenfranchise, and rampantly murder Mexicans. There's a, a new book out, the name of which I can't forget that you cite um, at length that has documented a lot of this violence. Well, as the Refusing to Forget pro- Mem- Popular Memory Project, which is led by a number of different historians, that is, that documents the violence of the Texas, the, the, I mean, oh, yeah. basically the Texas Rangers were, were, were what in other countries are called a death squad, dominating and pacifying a racially subjugated people and, and facilitating the process of land dispossession. And an important thing to touch on before we move on is that the border was a site of so much repression because it was also consistently the site of a possibility of a different sort of more just society as well. During the revolutionary, the Mexican Revolution, you have radical magonistas from the Partido Liberal Mexicana who are organizing cross-border anarcho-syndicalist revolutionary agitation and alongside the Wobblies actually invade Baja California at some point. And some of this violence in Texas is uh, directed against this rumored threat of a liberating army of races and peoples that would reconquer the Southwest and form a social republic. And then during World War I, it wasn't just Mexicans as Mexicans who were oppressed, but also in the Southwest, but also labor militants and Wobblies and thousands of strikers were deported. Can you sort of draw out this dialectic between repression and also this uh, the way the border and the meeting of, of these two countries also sort of incubated dreams that transcended the, the limits of both countries? Well, there's a lot of different process processes that are intersecting one is the you know the border is kind of wide open at this point people there's 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 migration the seasonal migration back and forth there's no it's not until world war one and well for the first the mexican revolution which starts in 1910 and then and then u.s's entrance into world war one uh uh, begin the militarization and hardening of the border but but it's still pretty much wide open and there's a, there there is this process of um dispossession and concentration of land and the creation of an extractive economy around minerals that 
that is um, large scale and capital intensive based on the creation of a multi-tiered labor hierarchy. If you're, if you're white, you get paid more. If you're Mexican, you get paid less. If you're a Mexican migrant, you get paid uh, somewhere in between, I imagine. Um, but the point is that the border serves as a form of kind of labor arbitrage and, and that, you know, creating a multi-tiered labor system in this larger kind of combined economy. The, the mining economy was transnational. It, it overlapped the border, the, ag- the ranching economy, the agricultural economy uh, um, uh, was, was some way uh, a kind of transnational phenomenon. And what's interesting, and yes, there is the politicization of it, the overflow of, of refugees from the Mexican War, from the Mexican Revolution, you know, towns like El Paso just becoming overrun by people fleeing the violence. There is the expansion of the political radicalism into the Southwest with the IWW and uh, anarchist traditions and anarchist currents that were that were very active in the Mexican Revolution spilling over into the United States. There is the react reactive fear of 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 southwestern elites of that radicalism that becomes that that leads to a kind of preemptory violence uh a lot of it executed by the texas rangers um the border becomes this place that where two things you know we talk about the border as a site of violence and terror and crisis which it obviously it is but then it's also this place of cooperation and, and 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 transnational and transcultural integration that that and both of those things are true at any given moment right you know the, the, there is a danger i think of talking about the border as 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 a crisis zone it is a crisis zone and it is the site of wild terror and violence and repression but then it's also been historically this place of 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 integration uh, on many levels one thing that i that makes a lot of this in invisible to us today is that after the civil war this giant machinery for westward expansion really takes hold with measures like the Homestead Act. But you write that major capitalists and speculators quickly took the best land, and then you have the rise of industrial capitalism squeezing farmers and workers alike, leading to this major period of labor and agrarian radicalism during the last decades of the 19th century. But we we still remember the West as settled by lone pioneers, when in fact, you write, quote, since its inception, the West has been the domain of large-scale power, of highly capitalized speculators, businesses, railroads, agriculture, and mining. What function has this mythology performed, and, and that continues to perform, including in terms of legitimating the reigning political economic order and in erasing this history of dissent, both at the border, as we were discussing, but also throughout the whole latter part of the 19th century? Well, in many ways, you see a deepening and expansion of a lot of the ideological functions that we talked about that ha- that, that took root under Jackson, that were theorized by earlier, by earlier Republican thinkers like Madison. The West becomes this place in which, um, in which it's imagined 
that the class conflicts of the East are dispersed and and diluted. This is a, a, a fine line to walk, understanding the way that people imagined this happening and then thinking if it actually did happen, to what degree West was the terrain of large-scale, concentrated power and economic wealth nearly from the beginning. And certainly you needed a, an orchestrated federal policy in order to to create the West, both in terms of settlement, both in terms of, you know, and everything that goes with settlement, communication and irrigation and, and, and pacification, you know, the creation of Western markets or the, or the, or the, or the creation of, of extractive industries required federal policy. But the, but the myth of the West as this place of individualism, as this place of, 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 of uh, openness and freedom developed in tandem with, with that orchestrated federal policy. And again, whether the, you know, it's the, I don't think that the experience and ideology is just a mirage. I think that w- there was a m- material foundation for it. Yes, the, the Homestead Act and all of these other federal laws that divvied up the land and privatized the commons benefited large-scale interests but settlers also got land right there was there was there was this also i think this 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 way in which the the, the arena of freedom and the material foundation of that arena was was a lived experience of many people and as Immigrants poured into the West as, as cities began to team and all of those problems that we associate with urbanization and industrialization and concentration of people and concentration of wealth and concentration of political power became very acute in the East. The West was increasingly ideologized as its opposite. And of course, the person who is most associated with that with that ideology is Frederick Jackson Turner. In 1893, he, he's, a, he's an assistant professor of history at the University of Wisconsin. He's from northern Wisconsin. He delivers a paper called The Significance of the Frontier in American History. The power of that presentation is that it is both sociological analysis. It lays out an argument, a causal argument, that American individualism and American democracy was created in the West, and and it's an argument against that earlier germ theory of history. So where it doesn't date back to Saxon deep time. <laughs> yeah, that you know, I mean, Woodrow Wilson, who was also an historian, I think he said that you know the Puritans created nothing. You know, everything that they every every you know the ideas of the Constitution were you know, came wholesale from Europe, you know, and were present in, you know, and, and so there were the germ theory is that, you know, the Saxon, you know, the, you know, the, that American democracy and freedom is a process of migration from Europe. Turner turns that on its head. Uh, he says that everything good about the United States, the individualism, the pragmatism, the inventiveness, the resilience, the mutualism was created 
on the frontier. So, well, so Turner is the Turner is really the person who kind of detaches the word frontier and lets it float free as an abstraction, an abstraction that's made possible by that early severance with the border and 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 with 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 Mexico that we talked about. But Turner is 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 important for a number of reasons. I in the book I compare him to to Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt was also an historian of the West. He wrote a number of books before he was president, The Winning of the West. And he was an unabashed Saxonist. He he believed the conquering of the West was an extension of the of battles that started in Germany in the 11th century. I mean, he, he was clear that the destruction of the Creeks was just the latest battle in a in a century-long expansion of Saxon of Saxon freedom. And he celebrated violence. He had a very wolfy and understanding of war and settlement. He thought that um, that waging war against Native Americans, against, nat- against nature, and against one's own base instincts was the cauldron that created civilization. And with the closing of the frontier, he thought imperialism was the solution to the closing of frontier, making Americans soft so that we didn't end up like China, uh, he wrote, quote, content to rot by inches in ignoble ease within our borders. I know. I know. So we had to avoid being Asia by conquering Asia. But but turn is important because by this point, a nation that had universalist pretensions couldn't move out into the world as if the world was the Louisiana Purchase writ large or the Mexican secession writ large. It had to, Turner had his biases and he, he, he it's fairly clearly that he was, a, he was an Anglo supremacist and just the, the, the subject matter, but he didn't fetishize war. He didn't fetishize violence. He didn't say that all that was good about the United States came from the blood gene of the Saxons. So he allowed a kind of, his frontier thesis allowed for a, a certain kind of uh, drew out the universalism of American exceptionalism. He, he did so, you write, not by he didn't celebrate genocidal violence, but that he did something that was perhaps more dangerous, er, erasing it, even though, and this was remarkable, I hadn't read this before, as a child in Wisconsin, he had seen it firsthand. His father led a successful push to drive Winnebago and Menominee peoples from their land. So he, I mean, he'd seen this happen and yet it's, it's nowhere to be found in the story that he tells about the role of the frontier in American history. Yeah. And his father's name was Andrew Jackson Turner, you know? Um, uh, (laughs) (laughs) so yes. So, so, uh, yeah. So, so there was the way in which he, he denied, he denied the violence that he experienced firsthand and celebrated commerce and, technology and public policy and wrote in a kind of, even if he didn't write in a passive voice, he, he, it was abstractions that were the subjects of his sentences. He wrote in a very pacific manner that if he talked about war, it was, you know, in passing and he downplayed it. And this was part of the, what I call a frontier universalism, that even as the border was concentrating a certain kind of Anglo supremacy and racial violence against Native Americans, uh, frontier universalism, even if you acknowledge, uh, even if even if you didn't deny that that expansion was a brutal process that involved dispossession and racial terror, you could credibly argue that as the U.S. moved out in the world, it would leave racism behind as a remnant. It, you know, it would universalize, and and this is the function of Turner's 
elaboration of the frontier thesis. It was the foundation of a kind of universalism. So the frontier comes to symbolize openness. It comes to symbolize moving out into the future. It comes to symbolize moving out into the world. He celebrates individualism, but it's a kind of mutualist individualism where people people and communities come together and cooperate with each other. Turner was a soft progressive. He 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 didn't like concentrated wealth and and he didn't like socialism, but he believed in public policy. He thought that he he was he was hoping he didn't he didn't want to extend the frontier metaphor either into the realm of imperial war, the way that Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt were only happy to, and he didn't want to extend the metaphor of the frontier into the realm of business and corporations. He had a very telling critique of the way that businessmen were positioning themselves as the new pioneers and the inheritors of the pioneer spirit. He hoped there would be a kind of turning inward, a mild turning inward with the end of the frontier, and that public policy a mild progressivism would would solve the problems of industrial capitalism. Before we get to the the socialization of the frontier and various attempts at it that you identify in your book, I want to talk about the the frontier idea, the role that it the decisive role it played in shaping Americans' relationship to the natural world, laying the groundwork for this vision of nature to be tamed and exploited that was contrasted against indigenous practices of living in tune with nature. Explain how the frontier helped craft this ideology about the relationship between humans and non-human nature and the political economic model that this ideology bolstered. Turner was fairly clear in his notes that he knew that government came first. He has a very telling kind of annotation of an essay that talked about pioneers, and he wrote a little government came first. So he was very aware that the role of the federal government. I mean, he saw federal troops remove Winnebagans from, from Wisconsin, right, at his father's behest. But he does lay out a sequence of what he understands to be a virtuous state that is, in some ways, the sequence of American exceptionalism. It's the individual, you know, uh, settlers move into the into the West either along trails, Indian trails through the interstices of in indigenous society, or along, you know, or in, in in river valleys, and they mix their labor with nature. They form communities. The communities begin to, as he put it, touch hands and create civil society. Trust builds as a result of commerce. And then the state comes as a way of kind of protecting. So nature is first, then settlement, then labor, then the creation of commerce, then trust, and, and all of the virtues of a, of a market society emerge of civil society, and then the state comes, and, and the role of the state is to protect this virtuous arrangement. And it's a sequence that I think is 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 the foundation of that obfuscation that we've talked about that separates the political from the social, and from the political from the economic, and is the foundation of a certain kind of fetish of individual rights. But the point is that he, he lays out a sequence in which uh, in which it, you know, nature precedes society. 
and in the book, I kind of, I, I mean, this is just an aside, but I contrasted with a kind of Latin American notion that, that nature is created by society. There, there is no space that isn't already social. And, uh, and where Turner is, Turner is a kind of ideologue of, a, of an American exceptionalism that understands nature as preceding society and then society coming and being created out of, out of, out of the mixing of labor with nature. And then, and then the state comes. There are n- numerous moments in American history when models for a social republic, a socialization of the frontier are pushed forward. And I want to talk about two that you highlight. First, the Freedmen's Bureau, established after the Civil War, which you describe as a potential model for something that would be the antithesis to Jacksonianism, an end to expansionist morality, where the solution to all problems was to flee forward. Then you discuss another in detail, which is the the New Deal. And you quote FDR as saying, quote, There is no safety valve in the form of a Western prairie to which those thrown out of work by the Eastern economic machines can go for a new start. How did each of these moments, the Freedmen's Bureau and the New Deal, explore the possibility of creating a social republic instead of a constantly expanding frontier, of socializing the frontier thesis? And how did the persistence of the frontier as expansion and domination undo or limit both of those projects? Well, uh, for the Freedmen's Bureau in the chapter that's titled The True Relief, um, I draw heavily on W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, Black Reconstruction, and he basically identifies the Freedmen's Bureau as, the, as a socialism in embryo, right? The clear-eyed conception of power that imagined a rationalization of, of resources and land, right? Uh, it, it's, a remarkable, it's a remarkable book that I draw heavily from. Part of what I try to do is a lot of the socialization of the notion of rights comes out of violence and war and revolution. The Mexican Revolution gives way to the first social democratic constitution uh, in Europe, um, uh, the wars, the revolutions and counter-revolutions and the repression of 1848 uh, gives way to what we might think of public health policies or social medicine. You know, there's a socialization of the right to life that just comes with tending to displacement, tending to wounds, tending to corpses, right? There's a, there's a certain kind of reality of the social, of obligations that come with it. There's a, a fairly well-known book, Drew Gilpin Faust, a Republic of Suffering, that talks about the, the, the ways in which the Civil War creates a sense of obligation. Interestingly, though, she doesn't talk about the Freemans Bureau. So I do, I do try to talk about the Freemans Bureau as, as, as one of the first times that the, the U.S. federal government kind of is forced to, to, to tend to mass misery. I mean, and, and, and through the, through the creation of, of, of this far reaching bureaucracy that becomes charged with healthcare and education and, basic provision of of necessities including food and tries to regulate labor and uh, Du Bois calls it the the most extraordinary and far-reaching institution of social uplift that America has ever attempted and then I try then I then then I, I go on to, to to speculate why it doesn't 
take hold, why this isn't the foundation of a kind of social democracy or social rights tradition in the United States and racism and the, and the, the deep-seated Jacksonian notion of freedom, which is dis- defeated in the Civil War in some ways, but isn't, isn't destroyed uh, and, and, and is revived. And then I looked the way that um, under Johnson, under Andrew Johnson, and I, I I try to look the way that expansion and the move west becomes the you know again it's the skipping off into the west which allows uh, which allows the country to turn away from the the bloody battlefields of the south. Uh, you know we can go into the specifics. Andrew you know Andrew Johnson as 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 Lincoln's vice president president after his assassination becomes almost a prototype for Donald Trump in his using the Freedmen's Bureau as as a way of building a racist constituency that is a revive a revivification of a of of a Jacksonian worldview. So there's ways in which, you know, and and Otis Howard, who was the general in charge of the Freedmen's Bureau, which was actually administered through the military, so uh, you know, with, with all of the good and bad you can imagine that of that administration, o- Otis Howard is is reassigned to put down the Nez Perce in, in in the Pacific Northwest. So it's a pretty classic example of of, of a pretty another illustration of how expansion West allows for a, a kind of turning away from from whatever social obligations that might have been. Uh, emerged that might have um, come out of the destruction of the Civil War, and then then there's then there's then there's the Great Depression and 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 uh, and the New Deal socialization of the Turner thesis, and I spend a, a, you know, what is so interesting is how many of these New Deal intellectuals, uh, Stuart Chase, Walter Weil. Henry Wallace, Francis Perkins, intellectuals, politicians were immersed in the Turner thesis. And they used the Turner thesis to explain the crisis, to explain hitting limits, hitting the wall um, with the Great Depression. Uh, Rex Tugwell, as Assistant Secretary for Agriculture, writes this incredible essay, uh, No More Frontiers, which explains the Dust Bowl and the ecological destruction wrought by expansive settlement and, and, and expansion west. And then they use that argument to put forward a new ethos of social citizenship. FDR himself was a student of Turner at Harvard. Apparently, though, he skipped out on that semester and went sailing in the Caribbean rather than... But he must have absorbed something because he often gave a five or ten minute summation of the Turner thesis to explain American wealth, to explain American prosperity, to explain the crisis. That you know there were no there was no more frontiers left, so the U.S. couldn't pull up stakes and and move on to escape an economic downturn. And then he would say, with just like with a sweep of the hand, just say, "But those days are gone." So there was a. You know, the power of the frontier thesis is that it contains within its own terms a critique of the frontier thesis. You know, if you hit the frontier, then, you know, then, then there's different ways you can theoretically move. You can say that you got to keep pushing the frontier out in further expansion, or you have to turn inward and create a new kind of ethos of social responsibility. And, and the New Deal's, the lot of the social concept of social citizenship 
And what these new dealers did was they, they pretty much affixed the adjective social on all of these old Tenarian categories. Social rights, social democracy, social citizenship. Roosevelt talked about social civilization. Henry Wallace talked about taming the social frontier. Walter Weil, an editor of The New Republic, basically talked about inner city slums the way Turner talked about the frontier. You know, that the basically we have to we have to figure out new we have to extend the idea of of conquest to public policy. There's so much in your book and we're just discussing, you know, a few slices of it, of the history. And I, I want to turn to the final portion of your book, which covers the prior four decades or so. You write that Reagan sublimated white power extremism into anti-communist counterinsurgency in Central America, a region that was for him our southern frontier. And then came the end of the Cold War with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union. George H.W. Bush said, quote, we saw the frontier beyond the stars, the frontier within ourselves. In the frontiers ahead, there will be no boundaries. With the Gulf War, he told, uh, I think it was returning soldiers, you know, you all not only helped liberate Kuwait, you helped this country liberate itself from the old ghosts and doubts. But but there was this, from the beginning in the early 90s, th- this void of, of true external purpose through which a reactionary domestic solidarity could gel. Bill Clinton pushed NAFTA and neoliberalism, saying, quote, the new global economy is our new frontier. But as you write, NAFTA, though, didn't help the country rise above the border, but rather hardened the border, transforming the line and all the hatreds and obsessions that go with it into a permanent fixture in domestic politics and a perennial source of nationalist grievance. There's a lot here, but explain in Capsule how what you call an ideological bubble, how this post-Cold War neoliberalism and militarism tried and failed to recreate the frontier against a backdrop of recurrent economic stagnation, a stagnation of national purpose from the 1970s on. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot there. We're covering a lot of ground. I mean, the the New Deal order merges into the Cold War uh, multilateralism that then leads to Vietnam, right? So, so um, in some ways, the New Deal coalition comes onto the stage talking about limits in a very creative, generative way, acknowledging limits and putting into place public policy that is both remedial at an on a visceral level for for millions of people but then also lays the foundation for a, a political economy that both creates unparalleled prosperity after world war 2 but then contains within its own with the, you know its own contradictions a, a certain drive to you know uh, to conscript and keep and maintain uh, cheap labor particularly for the agricultural sector which the new deal reconstitutes even as even as it's reconstituting a family farm sector but the new deal my point is the new deal comes onto the stage talking about limits and it goes off the stage talking about limits uh, jimmy carter's famous malaise speech doesn't say anything in 1979, that, that FDR wasn't saying in 1932 or 33, that we, we have this conception of, of, of limitlessness and we've hit a wall. I mean, he doesn't use those terms, but Vietnam is the end of the line. 
oil prices, rising oil prices, have created a sense of limits, right? whereas FDR was talking about the Great Depression and economic contraction. And you have this great line that I have to quote. You say, Ronald Reagan ran against Jimmy Carter's executive order to turn thermostats down in government buildings as if it were the British Royal Proclamation banning white settlement west of the Alleghenies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, right. So the New Deal comes onto the stage talking about limits and Jimmy Carter basically shepherds the New Deal off the stage talking about limits and it sets the terms for Reaganism. And Reagan is a pollster for Reagan who said when they heard Jimmy Carter's speech, they knew they had their, they knew they had their, their opening. They knew they had their premise which was basically more, 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 as an as a energy advisor to, to Reagan said. And so Reagan re-sanctifies the, the mission. He restores the idea of limitlessness. And one of the things that I try to show in, in the book is how Re- uh, yeah. the new right and Reaganism I use interchangeably, it's fundamentally negative in nature. It's running against abortion. It's running against gay rights. It's running against secularization. It's running against regulation. It's running against, you know, it's running against third, the third, third world nationalism, economic nationalism. But it also had a positive premise. It restored this notion of freedom as freedom from restraint. And Reagan was able to cobble together a coalition, a political coalition that was fundamentally reactive in nature, nature, reacting against the Vietnam War, reacting against loss in Southeast Asia, reacting against the rise of the Third World, the Iranian Revolution, the Nicaraguan Revolution, the, the, the ascension of Third World nationalism. But it was also a restoration of what could be arguably a moral idea of freedom, as freedom as freedom from restraint. And it backed that up with, as we know, a kind of fortification of the fossil fuel industry, privatization of large sectors of the New Deal, escalation of the military budget, tax cuts, and a drive back into the third world. And also a kind of remoralization of the ideal of individual rights, And in the book, I talk about the way foreign policy, and particularly the State Department, becomes a workshop in many ways to put forward a notion of individual rights as virtuous and a delegitimation of social rights, which is a reaction, obviously, to that social ethos of the New Deal, as well as to the spread of social rights in the third world. And foreign policy becomes the main venue for this moral project of the remoralization of a, I mean, to put it in blunt terms of a Jacksonian worldview of individual rights of freedom as freedom from restraint. You know, Reagan is, is, Reaganism is, 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 is mobilizing the backlash to Vietnam, which includes radicalized veterans who return from Vietnam and, and, one of the things that I, 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 I try to show in the book is um, the way Central America becomes a new safety valve, a way of channeling a lot of that extremism outward. The network that becomes Iran-Contra is basically a network of Ku Klux Klaners and John Birches and old writers that had become radicalized via Vietnam and created the logistical network of Iran-Contra. Civilian military assistance. Yeah, so the the civilian military assistance organization that was created in Huntsville um, 
Alabama by basically uh, law and order uh, security types and Vietnam veterans. And one of the things, and and I talk about this in Empire's workshop, but I, I go into a little bit more detail here. One of the things that CMA does is that they also simultaneously, as they're trained working with the Contras in Nicaragua and death squads in El Salvador, is that they're setting up a border patrol on on the southern border um, in Tucson, and they see it. And these this network sees it as all part of the same fight. You're fighting communists over there. You're fighting communists coming in here. But the Reagan administration breaks up the border vigilantism because it's a perfect example of the way and, and channels a lot of its energy outward into Central America. So it's a good example of how a kind of restored frontier allows for the venting of political extremism. Even, even as Reaganism rides that political extremism to, politi- to national power, it has a mechanism to contain it from itself being overwhelmed by that extremism. And then Reagan famously passes the 1986 immigration reform law, which I know you deal with in, in your forthcoming book um, and is an important moment in, in, in a lot of the devolution of politics to, to, to where we are now. George W. Bush then sorts of tries to do the same thing as as what Reagan did by sublimating these energies into the frontier, frontiers of of war fighting with the the war on terror. Um, and you write, quote, had the occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq not gone so wrong, perhaps Bush might have been able to contain the growing racism within his party's rank and file by channeling it into his Middle East crusade, the way Ronald Reagan broke up the militant nativist vigilantes in the 1980s by focusing their attention on Central America. For over a century, from Andrew Jackson Ford, the country's political leaders enjoyed the benefit of being able to throw its restless and angry citizens outward into campaigns against Mexicans, Native Americans, Filipinos, and Nicaraguans, among other enemies. But as thousands died and billions went missing, the vanities behind not just the war, but the entire post-Cold War expansionist project of more, more, more came to a definitive end, which brings us to the end of your book and to Trump. You write, quote, Trumpism is extremism turned inward, all-consuming and self-devouring. There is no divine messianic crusade that can harness and redirect passions outward. Expansion in any form can no longer satisfy interests, reconcile contradictions, dilute the factions, or redirect the anger. The wall is, quote, a mystification that simultaneously recognizes and refuses limits. Donald Trump figured out that to talk about the border and to promise a wall was a way to acknowledge capitalism's limits, its pain, without having to challenge capitalism's terms. How did we get to Trump? <laughs> well, I think that you, I think the answer's in the question. You, you laid it out very nicely in terms of uh, my argument that the, the wall is, is a symbol of, you know, to the degree that the, the frontier was a symbol of openness and expansion and moving into the future, the wall becomes a kind of symbol of, of turning inward, of hunkering down, a way of, of, of representing what some theorists called race realism, to bring it back to the beginning of the discussion, you know, an optimism 
that is fundamentally racist based on the idea of population growth leading to happiness as long as that population growth is Anglo-Saxon. We're now in, in a moment where there's a sense that the United States has, has hit its limits and that earlier kind of post-war, Cold War, multilateral universalism, the premise that all boats can rise, everybody can sit at the table, that the way to ensure security is to ensure prosperity and that all can be prosperous. You know, that was fundamentally a myth. That was, that was no more a reflection of reality than any other ideology or mythology that has structured American nationalism, uh, especially when one looks at the distribution of resources and the consumption, you know, the percentage of consumption and the percentage of waste and the monopoly of power that the United States exercises. I mean, look at NAFTA. NAFTA is the crown jewel of economic globalization, supposedly the symbol of everything that Trump has ran against and is and is and is governing against NAFTA freed capital and it freed commodities, but it paralyzed labor. There was no openness. There was no freedom about NAFTA. It was predicated on militarizing the border and ensuring that labor remained captive in Mexico. And if that's the crown jewel of the previous order, that was hardly an order based on openness. But in any case, it was a myth of openness. It was a myth of universalism, of, of everybody being able to sit at the table and everybody being, everybody being able to benefit, a win-win for the world. And Trumpism is the culmination of the exhaustion of that model. So it's tempting to think of the wall as as a disenchantment, as a more honest reflection of how the world actually is and the distribution of power. But I also talk about that it is its own illusion because it, it is a, a recognition of limits, but it is a sanctioning of a certain kind of freedom, but a freedom that that old Jacksonian freedom devolved into cultural expressions of cruelty and violence. You know, a petulant hedonism that's embodied by Trump himself. I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose supporters. There's a sanctioning of, of cruelty that has become, in some ways, the cultural expression of American freedom. And it's, it's, it's just as, as an illusion as earlier notions of, of the frontier and frontier universalism, because we are living in a world in which climate change reveals a true universalism. We really are all in the same boat. There is a kind of, there is a kind of common destiny that human, that humankind is hurtling towards. And some of us might get there. Some of the less fortunate might get there sooner than others, but there is a, there is a way in which there is an acceleration to the precipice that the wall is not going to stop. The task of the left in this context, you argue, is to reconceptualize American freedom beyond the frontier, or perhaps to to socialize the frontier. And it reminded me of Bernie Sanders in his opening rally in Brooklyn for his new campaign, the last sentences of which were, if we stand together, if we don't allow Trump and his friends to divide us up, there is nothing we cannot accomplish. This country has an extraordinary future. Let's make it happen. Yeah, 
it's it's that you know frontier universalism had marginalized the extreme two kinds of extremism at least in the context of um, of U.S. ideology extremism of the right and extremism of the left, and put forward a notion of a kind of centrism as a vital form of universalism, and and it deferred uh, a choice that other countries has had to face at different moments in its history. And the United States has managed to escape up until this point. And that's the choice between barbarism and socialism. And that's where we stand. Well, Greg Grandin, thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. It's been a, it's been a great conversation. Greg Grandin is a professor of history at NYU and the author of seven books, most recently, The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that capital comes dripping from head to foot from every pore with blood and dirt, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways. Our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, sometimes like this week, twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this thing up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. (laughs) 